Welcome to Candler in Conversation, the platform for engaging in conversations about faith, theology, and public life hosted by the Candler Foundry. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of our guests and not necessarily of Candler School of Theology. For today's conversation, we've gathered three phenomenal guests that will engage around the question of what does protesting have to do with our faith? The entire world seems to be responding to the multiple incidents of racial violence against Black men and women that has happened not only in the last few months, but in the last 400 years. From demonstrations happening in all 50 states in the U.S. to acts of solidarity happening across the globe, marches have been planned, signs have been made, and voices have been lifted to decry the dehumanization of Black bodies. Joining us today, we have Dr. Leah Gunny Francis, Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean of Faculty at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Gunny Francis. Thank you so much for having me. Next, we have Dr. Kyle Lambelay, Assistant Professor in the Practice of Theology and Ethics at Candler School of Theology. Thanks for being here, Kyle. Great to be with you all. Looking forward to this conversation. Finally, we have Darren Sims Jr. Darren currently teaches, preaches, and organizes around faith-based approaches to reducing recidivism and voter suppression. In addition to being a final year student, he also serves as the co-chair for diversity and inclusion on the Candler Coordinating Council. Welcome, Darren. What's up? To get us started, I'll ask everyone to respond to this first question. What does protesting have to do with our faith? or in particular, your faith? So personally for me, uh, like, and I think this is true of, of black people, but um, protesting is a part of, it's a part of us. Um, when I think of protesting, I think immediately back to um, enslaved people who decided that they would actively rebel um, for their freedom or who would sacrifice their body so that others may be free. Is that protest is ingrained in like everything that we do. Um, for black people to exist in this country was an act of protest. For women for, to have control of their bodies is an act of protest. So protest is like embedded into the American DNA. Um, this country was founded on protest. It was founded on people who wanted better for themselves, wanted like more religious freedom, X, Y, and Z. Um, and since then, we've seen like people in this country continue to protest. I mean, it's so embedded into our fabric that it's even in our constitution, you know, the right to assemble. So I think about how protesting is not only a part of like us individually, but it's a part of us nationally. Um, and, and I know personally for me, like I grew up watching like my mama, like organize and, and protest and, and raise money so people could pay their electrical bills at church. And so like, I grew up watching black women protest in their own ways. And so for me, it's very much something that I was born into. It's very much something that I think we as a country were born into the act of protest, uh, regardless of what side of the aisle you find yourself on. Um, and that it can look a myriad of ways, you know. Amen to that, Darren. For me, um, this cuts right to the heart of how I understand um, who I am as a person. 
and that I don't separate from my faith. So as people, we being created in the image of God, that anything that seeks to threaten, go against, um, harm the essence of who we are and who God has created us to be naturally sort of elicits a response of protest and resistance. And so for me, theologically, I see these things um, directly connected to the very inception of who we are as people created in God's image. And when we have things that are coming against to threaten the well-being of us and who we are, that, you know, naturally a protest to that will arise. And so um, that's how I, you know, really entered this space and that it cuts to the heart of the Imago Day for me and preserving the Imago Day. I really appreciate uh, both of those responses a lot resonates with uh, me and my sensibility. I, I guess in response to your question, Crystal, I'd say, look, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I try to follow Jesus. I try to conform my life to the example of Jesus. And as I read the Gospels, I find again and again that Jesus was an organizer. He was an activist, a protester. So what are the things that Jesus did? Well, he looked for emergent leaders among the people and called them forth. He cast a vision of new uh, forms of political life. He trained those leaders how to enact that new po political life and sent them out to do so and then brought them back. And they reflected together about how it went. He uh, develop relationships with neighbors, with strangers, with enemies, uh, identified shared interests, planned and executed public actions. Think of the road to Jerusalem, the uh, action in the temple. He held public officials accountable. So, of course, Christians affirm that the Nazarene was much more than an organizer. Jesus is son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true, true God. But um, as we affirm that Jesus was fully God, fully human, I don't think we should be surprised that Jesus, the Palestinian Jew from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, was an organizer. And as I kind of think about my own faith and my own uh, kind of lodestar in, as a follower of Jesus, I look to his example uh, as I think about how to, how to bring together or how to follow in his way. Thank you all for your responses. So I feel like this question naturally comes next then. What is theologically at stake if we don't protest, if we don't move our bodies in this way? I think what's at stake is people. I think about people like Harriet Tubman. I think about people like Nat Turner. I think about people like Gabriel Prosser who organized and protested and resisted in a time in which they knew what was at stake. They knew who was at stake. And I think that um, when we don't protest, when we don't put our bodies and we don't resist the system, um, people will be left um, to suffer. And I think that kind of like what Dr. Kyle was saying, like um, everything Jesus was doing was for the benefit of the community. So when he was actively organizing and protesting, it wasn't because oh, like, I think it's just going to benefit me. It was like, nah, because my community needs to be free. And so when we, we don't actively, when we don't activate ourselves and activate our communities, then we risk like 
the soul of our communities. We risk like the people and the people who like can't stand up for themselves or won't stand up for themselves. And so I think about like, how are we actively like activating ourselves for our kids and for our elders and for like people who can't be on the street and for people who, you know, at a time during a pandemic where people, everybody can't, uh, you know, be on the streets. How do we activate for those people? And those people are the people who are at risk. And so like, for me, that makes it very real is like, you know, I'm a father. And so I have two, I have two children. And so I can't live in a world where my son will be considered a threat, you know, and not galvanize and not, and not work to make sure that he has every possible advantage um, that he deserves. And so for me, it's about putting people first, putting communities first and making sure that we like show up for those people. A great comprehensive answer there for that. But just, just to, you know, kind of keep honing in on this issue of distortion, you know, what's at stake theologically? Um, if we continue to believe that it's okay to dehumanize Black bodies in this way, we are in effect de distorting um, not only our shared humanity, but our understandings of God and who God has created us to be and how God has called us to live in relationship to each other. To permit that to just stand as it is, um, we distort what we understand to be the teachings of our faith and of many faiths um, that we know around the world. And so, you know, we engage this work. We understand that it is deeply connected to not only who we are as individuals, but to the life of faith. Um, it has stark implications for congregations and churches and what they are teaching about what it means to follow in the way of Christ and what it means to truly love thy neighbor as thyself and do unto others, all of that. Um, that, you know, if we don't uh, model what that looks like in real time, then how can we say with integrity that those are the tenets by which we live? I really appreciate DJ, you're putting this, uh, vocationally and relationally, that uh, protest is about who we are. I um, mean, Dr. Gunning and Francis as well, thinking about our integrity as people of faith. And it's about who, whose we are, who we belong to, who we love. Um, and that uh, for DJ, it's your son, your, your kids that motivate in a way uh, your interest and engagement in this work. Um, I have two kids as well, and that is a clarifying relationship for me that calls me forth. What kind of world do I want my children to grow up in? What kind of inheritance do I want to give them? Um, and I think that's, that's the right kind of way to think about what's, what's at stake. I mean, I think also what's at stake, well, um, what's at stake is that these uh, heretical anti-theologies are masquerading as uh, Christianity. You know, the uh, two um, scholars that come immediately to my mind, Kelly Brown Douglas and her important work on stand your ground culture and the way in which that is embedded within a kind of American ex exceptionalism that is, uh, takes on a theological, not just a veneer, but is deeply theological. It's a heretical theology, but it's a theology that's at work, that's animating white supremacy and the standard ground culture. Um, 
and also uh, Willie James Jennings and his work in the Christian imagination, thinking about the ways in which our uh, understanding of Christianity, our understanding of the mission of Christianity is fundamentally diseased. We operate with a diseased social imagination. So what's happening when we protest, when we take our faith into the streets? Well, in, in one way, in a small way, and not in any way a complete way, but in one way we're, we're restoring, we're uh, offering a therapy to that diseased social imagination to begin to join together in new ways, to find our vocation and mission as people of faith again uh, in, in a new way, a way that uh, resists those heresies that live within our tradition and contests them and calls forth for a different way of being people of faith together. Dr. Carr, I love that so much. Like I think about, like it makes me think of a Chance lyric. Like, I don't know if you know who Chance the Rapper is. I'm in love with Chance the Rapper. And he has this line where he says like, I speak to God in public. And that was something that just always resonated with me because it's so like, you know, like when we when we talk to God or when we pray, it's often like, oh, you know, we're whispering or we're like quietly by ourselves. But protest is like directly the opposite of that. And for me, protesting is a form of like prayer. It's a form of like talking to God in public and saying like, God, like this is wrong and I don't agree with this. And it's like talking to like the powers that be and saying it's like it's like saying we see you. You know, you can't hide. We're not going to like ignore like what we see. And we're going to like scream about it in the streets and out loud. And so I think that like, you know, even James Cone, he writes about like the uh, the supernaturalness of freedom and like how like protests and the idea of freedom is innately supernatural. Like the, like, I have the right to be free. Like you have the right to be free. Like, <laughs> like, like that, that something, even when everything else around you tells you, no, you're not free. Like I think of black people like growing up in the South, like, no, you're not free. Your bodies are not your own. But black people still saying like, no, like these are my bodies. These you know, women saying like, this is mine. I think there's something innately supernatural about this. Innately divine about how people see themselves. And especially as I've been at these protests and I felt this, this incredible energy from people, like energy to where people are like talking, like people who like could do serious harm to them. You know, people like, they were people in like full riot gear, batons, mace, sniper rifles, and people at them saying, we see you. We, who you know who are just singing and chanting and have drums, you know? So I think there's something divine about that. And like calling, like talking to, talking to like power and principality directly. Um, for me, that's, that's, that's divine. DJ, I love what you said in referencing Chance the Rapper first, but also about protesting not being new. Like it's a thing that has been a part of our history for a really long time in just making sure that change can happen and talking directly to power. Um, what would you say is the relationship between faithfulness and effectiveness in these movements? Ooh, that's good. I think faithfulness is um, is is it's like one understanding like that. So in our current conversation around police abolition, like we're not going to defund the police tomorrow. We're not going to defund them next week, next month, maybe even next year. But it's about the fact that this conversation about defunding the police has been happening literally since police were founded in this country. Like we can trace the earliest police department 
in Boston in like the late 19th century. And immediately people were like, mm, we don't like this. <laughs> so I think that like police abolition has been a conversation that's been happening. And it's because of those like conversations, policy that failed, policy that gained a little traction here and then kept going. And then we see this, you know, we see Angela Davis, you know, in the 70s and 80s come out and, and, and blatantly say, we don't need police. We don't need prisons. A black woman from the South saying, you know, a part of the Black Panther Party saying we don't need police, we don't need prisons. And now we're here in 2020. So I think that it's faithfulness is like, you know, we've been, the work has been, the ground has been tilled for a long time to be where we are now, over a hundred years. And versus saying, versus coming up with something quickly and saying, you know, we're seeing stuff now where people say, oh, you know, we're divesting from police or we're doing police reform really quickly. Um, and we don't know if it's effective. We don't know what it's going to look like. We you know it hasn't been tried and tested. But the fact is that we've we've constantly and black people and black women who have radical politics have constantly pushed the narrative forward about policing, about abolition to where now it's mainstream, to where now globally we're having a conversation about, you know, what does surveillance look like in this country? Um, for me, that's what effectiveness, that's what faithfulness looks like. It means being committed to the movement, not just when it's popular, but even when it's not. Um, and which I think, you know, is why we are where we are today. Kyle, would you speak to that question in regards to your own research? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first, let me just, uh, DJ's laying down a lot of wisdom. So I just want to appreciate it. And um, I think the, it, it resonates with my uh, research on social movements and that um, if you want to take on big problems, not little problems, but big problems, problems like uh, militarism, problems like um, white supremacy and the legacy of genocide and slavery in this uh, country we call America, if you want to take on those big problems, you need a long view. And to cultivate movements can can be can be spaces that can cultivate that long view, in which, um, and I really appreciate uh, DJ pointing us to the witness, the uh, singular witness of uh, Black women in this regard. I just think of the women who hoped for their children's freedom when they were enslaved, like how did they hold on to that hope in the midst of that uh, uh, cruel um, and inhuman context? How did they hold that hope? How did they work for that hope when it didn't seem like anything that could be done was effective? How do you stay faithful to that hope? Well, that's the kind of like long-term hope that I think movements can, can cultivate. Um, but, you know, this tension between faithfulness and effectiveness has long history. Um, Max Weber talked about it as the distinction between an ethics of responsibility and ethics of ultimate end. We can think together if we want about how that structures, I think, Christian ethics as a field, as well as uh, peace studies and nonviolence. And those are my academic interests. But I think what's much more interesting is the way to animate activist conversation on the ground. Are we gonna do something? Uh, so you'll hear people say on the one hand, like this is my stand 
and I will uh, stick to it and no one's going to draw me away from it. Um, and there's something prophetic and powerful about that. Um, but then there's other folks who say, you know, um, insert explicative here, your principles, like we got to get some things done. And if we're going to get some things done, here's what we have to do. And so they often get faithfulness and effectiveness often get pitted up against each other. Um, and I think that's uh, a problem. I think that's a mistake that actually what we want um, is for a live dialectic of faithfulness and effectiveness, a kind of practical reasoning that includes both of these goods and works through, okay, if we are faithful to this long-term vision that's been incubated in these communities of resistance, if we want to be faithful to that, we need to take some small effective steps now that continue to build our imagination, build the capacity to do something way beyond that. I've learned a lot from folks right here in Atlanta working on prison abolition um, and the kind of small piecemeal uh, partial thing that they have done is to take away or to work toward ending cash bail. Now, ending cash bail does not end the prison industrial complex, but it does uh, something really significant and important. It builds our imagination for what abolition could look like. And so a small reformist change like that can be situated in this much longer term um, vision. And I think keeping faithfulness and effectiveness in a kind of live dialectic allows that to happen. I think, you know, Dr. Lambert, with the um, example of ending cash bail and that being a piece of dismantling the criminal justice system, it's a huge piece. So back to Darren's point about relationality, like what that means for people in real time to not be um, imprisoned where oftentimes they haven't even been uh, uh, found guilty or charged with a crime uh, in, a, in a substantive way and to only be detained because they cannot afford to make bail. Um, you know, that's a huge piece of the puzzle of, of, of doing that for what that means in real time. And yes, that, you know, sort of pitting faithfulness against effectiveness or the other, oh, does this really work? Does it really matter? You know, why don't you try something else? It's the both and all of it. Um, the last thing we want to ever do is to continue to allow, allow the ideological debates to hold up real progress. And so the multiplicity of ways that people are finding to engage these issues, to resist, to work against, to protest, it's the all of that together that's building up to a new way of being for all of us. Dr. Henning Francis, I'm wondering if you could share more about how this moment is either similar or different to what you wrote about in Ferguson and Faith in 2014. Um, how do those two moments compare for you? 
Yeah, so, so there are many similarities, right? As there were when we look back to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, we can see many similar elements. For example, things like uh, young people being very instrumental in taking to the streets and making the witness, witness public in um, saying, no, we're not gonna continue to tolerate this. I mean, who would have ever thought that you know people would have to send literally young children as they did in the Children's March in Alabama that made such a huge difference in moving the civil rights agenda forward. So young people from as young as children on into young adulthood, that we see that continuous thread being held across movements um, to include both the Ferguson movement for racial justice and the current movement we see now. Um, we also know that as much as we talked about in Ferguson as this being a moment where people were not gonna look away, they could not look away that what we saw, what happened to Michael Brown and the, the images, the pictures um, that came out after that, that this was really going to be a defining moment. And it was in many ways, like when you look at the number of international conversations that were not only happening, but continued movement for racial justice related to policing and economics and other things after that happened, we saw that getting some traction. But at the same time, we also saw after the killing of Michael Brown, the killing of Tamir Rice and of Ezel Ford and Sandra Bland and, you know, so many others. And so for as we saw this moment that we thought would really be the kind of watershed where police um, uh, around the country were saying, look, we got to review these policies, these protocols, these use of force, all of these kinds of things to ensure that, you know, unarmed people are not continuing to be harmed um, in these ways, but that didn't happen. And so here we are today and we're seeing um, young people, we're seeing not so young people, we're seeing people of multiple races um, step up, stand up and say, enough, we can't keep doing this. One of the things I think is a little different now is in Ferguson, we saw the quick trip burn and that smoke signal got the national media onto the scene. In Minneapolis, when we saw what happened with George Floyd being suffocated to death for eight minutes and 46 seconds and the subsequent burning that happened, you again saw the media really taking hold of it. The slight, one of the slight differences I'm seeing is the way that communities all around this country responded in similar ways signaled to me and I think to others too that people all around were saying this time we cannot looking look away with Ferguson we thought more people were saying we're not going to look away with this we're going to deal with this and many people did but not enough right now 
we're seeing even more people say, no, this is a type of injustice that cannot continue to stand. And we've got to make radical, not just little small incremental change, but radical change to bring an end to these type of atrocities. But I still ask the question, number one, why does it require that smoke signals go up in order for people to say, okay, oh, we didn't know it was that bad or whatever. What, people have been talking about this, documenting this for decades. Um, but it's for some reason still, it's not until buildings start burning that um, there seems to be uh, sort of more of a widespread response to, okay, maybe this is something we ought to think about doing something about. But the time is now. I just think that the energy that is moving now is relentless, it is determined, it is multifaceted, it is persistent, and it is insistent that this time we will not be scared and pushed aside and permit you to um, just say, you know, just let this go out with the next news cycle because we see that the movement is continuing. Dr. Francis, oh, can I, can I, can I respond? I think that on your point about like, buildings burning i think that's because protest literally comes into conflict with capitalism protest directly challenges and prevents capitalism from continuing people aren't shopping people aren't um people and, and even now you know people are spending their money very differently you know we have we live in a very social entrepreneur side so where people are, are intentional about spending money on things that reflect their values and so protesting, and we saw this in Atlanta where people were not, you know, where they were, were I was like, oh, they, you know, they, they broke the windows at CNN. And people were like, we don't care about CNN. <laughs> we like, right? Or, or, um, or Atlantic Small. And so people, and so protesting comes into conflict with the, one of the oldest cis structures of America, capitalism. And so th then we see a response of, okay, well, there's an economic, crisis so we need to fix this but why are we putting dollars before bodies why does it take a a man with a with his knee on his neck why is that not enough but why when the police department is burned in minneapolis then it's a national issue or when the quick chip was burned or when the wendy's is burned rather than the actual violence that's committed against black bodies why is that not a why is that not the smoke signal why is the smoke signal not the, the 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 bodies that have been you know that have been that have, have been executed at the hands of state violence. I think that capitalism is a way that yeah. it's that it's a signal for the powers that be um, about we need to do something. Um, but right. I, so I, I just want to. I hope that my my statement was clear in the in the question that I'm raising is why does it take smoke signals right. to get a response? Right. Because you know how many times have we heard? Oh, why do people riot? Why do they do this? Well, you know, people like to quote Dr. King all the time. He's, he said a long time ago that riots are the language of the unheard. How many petitions have people filed? How many times have they gone to the city council meetings and tried to talk to people? But it can, it seems to never get a response until the smoke signals get up. And so to your, to your question, I just want to make sure that my point is clear because I'm asking the same thing. Why are not the bodies enough? Why are not the dead or injured bodies enough? Why does it take the burning of buildings, the cutting to the heart of the um, economic engine in our country 
for people to enough people to say, oh, okay, maybe now we'll do something. So I just wanted to make sure that my point was correct. I wasn't saying that as a criticism of, oh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of the Bernies, but just want to make sure that 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 point is, you know, to to your point also what you're saying that that the bodies ought to be enough. But unfortunately, in this country, the brutality against black bodies is not enough. And this is what makes this moment apocalyptic in the sense of unveiling. What it unveils is the way in which um, for America, black lives have always been property. And so comparing the CNN tower to a black life is heinous, it's morally offensive, and that's how America has valued black life all along. So it tears back the riot. Uh, I've learned uh, from Vicki Osterwell's uh, essay in defense of looting. And she argues, look, looting gets to the heart of the white supremacist system, which is completely bound up with the practice of capitalism and the valuation of life based on its relationship to property. That's why looting works. And it's, uh, you know, we can have another conversation about whether that's uh, an effective and faithful tactic. And that's, I think, an important conversation for movements to have. But clearly, it's the case just empirically, as Dr. Downing Francis is pointing out. It take, that's, that has been what it has taken, the destruction of property, in order to raise the uh, awareness of a wider public about uh, the wrongs that have been committed here. And I'm just going to add to that. I mean, I saw something recently, Dr. Kyle, about like the origin, <laughs> the origins of looting in this country. Like America has been an expert in looting, not only people, but resources. From indigenous folk who were here before us, to black people, you know, to cultures from around the world. So like that conversation about like looting in America, I think it's an important one to have. I know we can't have it here. I wish we could, but it's like, it's so important. And like how we, what type of like looting is acceptable. It's like acceptable looting in America. Like, oh, you can loot this, but not that. Or these people can loot and that's okay. It's okay for them, but not for other people. So, What if we took Jesus's um, action on the temple as our, our lodestar? What if we said, this is our example for what righteous looting looks like turning over tables, throwing out the money changers, taking a whip and, uh, you know, casting everyone out so that it can be a, a house of prayer for all people, for all people. What if we took that as fundamental for what it meant to be a Christian, is to follow in that way? Well, that shines a different kind of light on uh, some of the practices we see, the repertoires of action that we see in the streets today. So this question came in from Facebook and it has more to do with someone probably wanting to get involved but not sure how. So the question is, can you more specifically discuss protesting and the requirement to maintain relationships with imperfect institutions that one is protesting against? So referencing Emory University, the UMC Church, what does protesting mean for students beholden to the academic institution? Wow, that's deep. I, I, I find for me, 
uh, protest is about proximity. So the first thing you do is you organize what's around you. You know, like, it doesn't make sense me going to tell other people to vote and my household isn't registered to vote. And so what I learned early on, my mom is, you say, my mom always told me you model what you preach. You know, that's a common saying in the black church where we say. And so in, in thinking about these institutions and thinking about, it's, I mean, for me, it really does start small. Like what groups are you a part of? What are, what's your network? What's your social clubs? And it's having those conversations. It's finding out how can I, like, how can I activate not only my own, what's around me and where do I need to be pushed? I think that at, you know, institutions like these large imperfect institutions, it can be intimidating to say, I think you guys are doing this wrong, but that's exactly why you need to say it. That's exactly why we need to call these institutions out. I mean, I look at uh, Minneapolis, you know, who decided we're going to disband our police department and the University of Minneapolis, of Minnesota, who said, we're going to divest from um, police, um, police force from our games. That was the direct action of protesters. That was a direct action. That was directly because of people on the, on the small level, because it does not benefit the institution at all. It does not benefit uh, the police department. So literally students got together and said, this is what we want. And so I think it's about coming up with like, what are we proximate to? You know, at some institutions, sports isn't a thing, but there are other ways to divest from structures of power. There are other there are ways to financially divest. There's ways to socially divest. So it's really just about finding like where you are and what's around you and what's and 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 what power you hold and wielding that power for people who don't have that power to wield. The rooms that you're in, the people that you talk to, the even the things that you post and watch and read, like all of those are ways in which you can divest. And even, I learned this from my mentor, I mean, and, and you may know him, Dr. Francis, uh, uh, Reverend Starsky Wilson. What he said, what, what he told me was, he says, even in my own day, as a, as a preacher and as a minister, um, there are times when people would ask him for a quote and he would say, no, I'm gonna pass the mic to a younger voice, to, a, you know, to somebody who doesn't get the mic even though he has a platform, I'm still relinquishing that to lift up this voice that doesn't get to speak, to lift up this woman of color who's at the same meetings I'm at, attending the same marches, doing the same work, but doesn't get a chance to speak. And so talk to her. And so there are ways in which even on your personal level that you can like amplify, amp up other voices, amp up voices that don't get heard, amp up people and movements that don't get you know, published. Like really, I've been learning a lot right now about our trans community and the struggles they face. And it's because of people amplifying their voices. You know what I'm saying? So it's really just finding them, like finding out what you're close to and really what you don't know and digging in. I'd add to that. Um, also be willing to ask yourself, what are you willing to risk? Because understanding that anytime you're talking about um, really going against the status quo of something that you're close to the institution that you're a part of, there is inevitably risk inherent in that. But what we know, it, if it were not for the many risks that people have taken um, throughout history to be able to sort of force the kinds of changes that were needed, um, we wouldn't even be where we are today, realizing how much further we have to go. So it's just having those real come to Jesus 
moments with yourself, with your group, with people that you can confer with and, you know, just be real about it and just go in wide eyed that yes, there are risks involved, but for most people who do engage in this kind of work, we realize that the, the risk of doing nothing or the risk of keeping things the same is too great, um, the outcome for that. And so just having those real honest conversations with yourself and just go in as wide-eyed as possible, um, realizing that risk is inherently a part, an integral part of doing this work, whether you're doing it in the boardroom of an institution or on the streets in Minneapolis or Atlanta or Ferguson, wherever it is, there's risk inherent in that. I really appreciate the focus here on risk. Um, and I think just to amplify one part of that, that kind of discernment is best done in community with people you love, people who you care for, people who care for you. Like those kind of, that kind of discernment has to happen um, together uh, in community, you know? So, you know, what are some of the risks that we face now? Uh, for those of us who want to be engaged in this work. Risks of being beaten or killed by police or vigilantes, that's happened here uh, in Atlanta. Risk of losing your job. Um, risk of losing relationships, families, and friends. Risk of getting sick. I mean, let's be real, we're in a pandemic. Uh, that is a risk. Um, risks of getting others sick. And so I think the kind back maybe coming back to that kind of faithfulness effectiveness question we have to engage in a kind of practical reasoning together and discern together with others around us what kind of risks are we willing to take and then the i think the gift in my experience of doing that kind of discernment is when you get on the other side of that when you've taken uh you've counted the cost um there's a real freedom because those people that discerned with you then are going to be able to support you uh, when the risks happen. So that's, I think, a really important, significant part of what movement involvement means. So find who your people are, find your affinity group, uh, find your community, and, you know, dig in there, uh, whether that's at your uh, work or institution, whether that's at your church, whether that's in the streets, um, but find somebody, somebody's to do that work with. Okay, I just wanted to add a, um, an, another point to that related to congregations and churches, because when we talk about the issue of risk, uh, there are um, some churches around the country, faith communities that uh, do actively engage themselves in the movement for Black lives in this country, um, whether it's on the street protesting, whether it's right around the corner from where I live, one of the largest churches in Indianapolis, a predominantly white church has a huge Black Lives Matter banner hanging outside their church in a very high traffic area. Um, you know, inevitably, congregations that engage in the movement for Black lives are going to face backlash. I haven't met one who's engaging in the work that hasn't, whether it's that um, pastor, whether it's the governing board, the leadership, whatever, and they need to be prepared for that. And don't be in this position of, well, we're trying to just, you know, not upset anybody. You can't do that 
in this fight. You have to decide, are we going to work for the full humanity of all people for black lives, especially, or are we just gonna continue to try to stand on this mythical middle ground, which does not exist? So that risk, in addition to the individual personal risk, as you have already named, we've all already named those, also just thinking institutionally, whether it's a congregation or a school, you know, that does take not only firm stances against racism, white supremacy, but also enacts policies, divestment policies, actions to um, decolonize the curriculum, whatever it is, you're gonna face backlash and you just need to be prepared for it, but determined that this is the way to faithfully live out our faith and follow in the way of Christ. And to add to that idea about risk, I think about, I, I, I really, I'm a child of history. So like, I love history, which in, I went to an HBCU. And so HBCUs are intrinsically, you just learn so much history that you just don't. But I, what really stuck out, I went to Fisk and SNCC was, Fisk was heavily involved in the civil rights movement. And it was very heavily led by students. So committees like SNCC. So students literally are responsible for like dismantling like Jim Crow and like the South, like students who did, who did um, uh, the civil rights and who would like ride down South and like segregated road. It's because of students. So students hold immense institutional power, um, regardless of what anyone says. The institution runs because of students. Um, and, and, our, and, our, and our elders knew that. So in the 60s, when we see students demanding that they be treated equally, that, that their institution be funded equally, it's because of the power of students, black students throughout the South at a time in which it was improper and dangerous to be anything but on your side of town. You know, we live in it, I, you know, I'm here in Atlanta, my wife went to Spelman. The AUC literally um, was, was filled with students who decided, who actively organized in Atlanta, who actively pushed uh, legislation forward in this city. And so I'm empowered by students when facing academic uh, institutions. Um, if anything, I feel uh, emboldened to speak up uh, because there are people, I'm, I'm able to attend Emory University because people like me decided that I should have the right to. Mm -hmm. Students decided that black people should be at this institution, which you know is named after John Emory, you know, a, a slave owner. So I think that there's highly, there's power in students um, to, to organize in a protest. I think students should actively, actually students should be taught that, you know, in orientation about ways students have like organized at this school. I just think that's powerful. <laughs> yeah. And so we've kind of talked about a few different ways that people protest, but what would you say, what would you all say are some practical ways? So what if someone doesn't want to get out on the street? What are some other ways? Um, the really beautiful moment about 2020 and since 2020s, like the roller coaster that it just won't stop, <laughs> um, is that there have been, I've seen more organizing this year than I feel like I've ever seen before. In lieu of a pandemic, in lieu of a racist administration, uh, in lieu of, of just it being an unemployment being at an all time low, I've seen people of all races, colors, faiths, 
traditions, sexualities, organizing actively. Um, digital organizing has really been, has really taken off where I've seen people in groups like Facebook and Microsoft that have like adapted and made it available for people to like organize online. I've, I've seen in Atlanta, we have a group called the Atlanta Protest Chaplains that have like organized and are at protests that are praying for people, for people who can't be there. They're, uh, they're getting phone numbers and praying with people when they get back home from demonstrations. There are people who are buying water, who are cash apping protesters. There are lawyers who are, you know, representing people in and out of jail um, virtually that have been pushing courts. There's been, I've seen so many different ways that people can protest. For me, it's about, again, like I said, it's about proximity. So it's about understanding, like, what are you around and what can you do? Everybody can't be on the streets because we're in a pandemic. Um, everybody can't um, put their livelihood on the line in that way or their bodies on the line in that way. Um, and we saw that in the civil rights movement, where people who were literally who were literally just cooking food and to give protests when they got back home. I think about in some Alabama, there was a woman out of a church who's responsible for feeding 16,000 people as they walked from Selma to Montgomery, a black woman who, who made over 20,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, nobody knows her name, um, but you know, she found, that's what she did. She found her way to niche in Ferguson. There was a memorial, you know, in the middle of the street in Ferguson and cars were running over all the time. And a, and a, a woman got out there and would direct traffic around the memorial. And so people were finding ways to just organize with what's around them. They weren't, you know, learning. They were just, they were activating what was already inside of them. And so I think about think of, thinking about people, what's inside you, you know, can you design flyers? <laughs> Cause I can't, <laughs> you know, you know, can you, are you tech savvy? You know, what, what's already inside of you and how do you use that for social good? Like what's your superpower is the way I've heard it. And so just thinking about that and, and, and talking to people like, how can, like, you know, I think like Dr. Kyle said it, like asking people, like, what can I do? <laughs> like, how can I get involved? Cause sometimes it takes a partner saying like, I want to contribute. I wonder, but I don't know how. So I think, you know, talk to people. You know, I think um, in Ferguson, Mama Cat, I think has fed thousands at this point in Ferguson in the movement um, after just as, as her significant offering um, and so many others to your point, Darren. Also, you know, get right in where you are. I mean, we can't press that point enough, right? Because too often people just default to inaction because they say, oh, I can't go out in the street or, you know, I don't really feel comfortable doing X, Y, Z. Um, there are so many different kinds of ways, whether you're talking about political mobilization and organization, um, you know, still picking up the phone, calling people, getting people engaged, that those kinds of things matter. So don't despise, um, oh, I can't be out in the street, you know, what, what you can do as something that's inferior or not as important as other things. You know, as I've said many, many times, we have a multifaceted problem in relation to white supremacy racism in this country. It requires multifaceted solutions and creative engagement from multiple ways and levels if we're going to keep making traction. 
a, something you made me think of, Dr. Francis, is another quote um, my big sister has, who's an activist. What she says is that a bullhorn in the street is not the goal, but it's a method. And so the goal is not to be, you know, in the street with a bullhorn and like, yeah, like this is it. Like, no, like that's not where, it, that's where it starts. That's not where it stops. And so protests now, you know, I feel the energy is shifting into a political, the political sphere where people are actively legislating, you know, we're in, and it's crazy, this is happening in an election year where people are saying, okay, so now we're protesting at the ballot, you know? So now we're protesting at the poll. Um, and that understanding that your, you know, it may be around civic engagement. It might be around, you know, whatever, but, you know, don't let the image of what protesting looks like stop you from what your calling is. Another thing I want to say is, and I have to say it, is that um, watching documentaries and reading is cool and it's good, you know, but that's not where it stops either. So I, you know, there's a lot of people saying, you know, read these books and be, then you'll become anti-racist. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should definitely read these books, absolutely, and watch these documentaries, absolutely. And then- <laughs> And then go and do, <laughs> go and do likewise. Yeah. Don't and just stop there. Talk to your family members, you know, like, what's, like, what are you proximate to? So like watching the film saying, okay, mom, dad, we need to talk. <laughs> like, or X, Y, and Z, we need to have a conversation. And I, it's really about, for me, it's about those conversations that are happening around you and within your, yeah. within your networks and within your institution. Um, even within the black church, I'm having a conversation now around, around abolition because it, you know, it's not a mock, everybody doesn't agree with the idea of it, but it's about having those conversations with people I'm around. Um, right. That's where it starts for me. And so, and that's why I, I have to educate myself first and then I can have those conversations, but I can't just educate myself and then call myself an abolitionist. I have to do the work of abolition as well. I really appreciate DJ, you displacing the bullhorn as the kind of ideal or telos, the end of uh, protest. I think the end that we're working for is building power, building power through relationships. So uh, political theorist Hannah Arendt says, uh, power comes from our capacity to act in concert. Our capacity to act in concert. And how do you build that power? Well, you build it by uh, identifying shared interests, by building a relationship that then allows you to act, to move in concert. Um, and, you know, so I think that's really got to be the telos. That's going to be the goal of what we're working for. Um, and all of us can do that. All of us can do that from where we're at, wherever we are. And it requires some education. It requires some uh, commitments, but it requires organizations. It requires joining organizations, uh, being an active part and participant of being a good citizen in organizations and institutions. It requires building affinity groups that can do the discernment about risk and direct actions if that's necessary, that's called for. Um, but mostly it requires uh, that we be in relationship with, with one another, that we invest in relationship with one another, that we seek out and find out what are, what are the interests? Why is DJ out here? Why is he doing this work? Why is Dr. Gunning Francis, why, why did she go down to the streets in Ferguson? What was motivating her? And then can we find some enough commonality to work together, to act in concert, to build power together. 
Thanks for that, Kyle. Um, so we are just about at time, but I really wanted to ask you this question because we talked about faithfulness and effectiveness, um, churches being activated, um, being a community, relying on our relationships and really pushing those relationships to actually make change. But going back to the question of what does protesting have to do with our faith? Um, what about protesting is liturgical? I think many see it as, you know, a ritualistic act of worship, right? It's one that is given fullest expression as we've all talked about, you know, our humanity, who we are as community, who we are as people created in the image of God. And um, the very act, the public act, just as our public other rituals, um, whether they're worship services, funerals, weddings, whatever, the act of worship is really giving fullest voice to know this is what how we are giving concrete expression to our beliefs to our faith that this is what we believe God desires you know so many times we've heard people say oh we'll just pray about it just pray about it no this is about praying with our feet and letting people see those feet praying in a very concrete and tangible way that is undeniable and doesn't permit people just to look away and have some image of prayer and worship as something that's either private or relegated to a sanctuary, but rather the kind of public art, art if you will, of, of giving this kind of liberative voice is inherently, inherently Christian. Yeah, I really uh, agree with Dr. Fr uh, Gunning Francis. I mean, he, as I think about the question, you know, what, what makes protest uh, liturgical or how is protesting liturgical in nature? Let me uh, just sketch out a scene. So at an agreed upon time, people come together. They coordinate their, their movements. They gather together. They raise petitions prayers, if you will, speech, song. They chant together in a common voice. These participants, they gather around a broken and violated body, a victim of state violence. The culmination of this time is a, is a call to commitment, an invitation to a change of life. After word, song, participants move together in a common procession and then go out into the world taking with them a sense of vocation and purpose. So what, what am I describing here? You get the conceit. I could be describing a service of Christian worship. I could also be describing a street protest. Now, there are important differences to be sure, and maybe we wanna talk about that, but at this point, I just wanna identify the overlap. Protest is liturgical, Lit liturgy is political. And we can tie ourselves in knots trying to disentangle them, or, uh, or we can affirm that for the people of God, just echoing what Dr. Gunny Francis said here, God's work of salvation has something to do with our public life. Dr. Kyle, I think what you said, hit, like, hit on the nail, absolutely. Like, I think about in Ferguson, we had a chant where we would say, resist, fight, take those crooked cops to jail, the whole damn system is guilty as hell. And we would say that over and over again. 
over and over again. And it was like a song. And then before you knew it, we had 10 songs to learn. It felt like I was at choir rehearsal. We like, you know, and you know, there are these protest chants that are symbolic that we even take from the civil rights movement when they would march in Montgomery and march in Selma that we still use today. And so I think like of like I'm thinking of like a historical liturgy of, of protest worship. But I also think about how I, re I, I recently was at the protest at the governor's mansion and I thought of there was a moment where all of the white people stood in front of all of the black people and literally put their bodies in front of ours as a form of protest and say, and they did that on their own. I don't know, maybe they sent a mass text out, I don't know. But they put their bodies in front of ours and said, we're going to like stand up for y'all in this way. And I just thought about the symbol that that stood for, like the moment that that was in at that moment, like what that meant when we could tell that police were actively gearing up to like, like tear gas people, tear, tear gas folks and stuff. Um, for me, it, it really, it really just talked about how in church where we just are proximate to one another and can tell what each other's needs. And so I just felt like this high sense. It reminded me of church, like you said. It, it reminded me of moments of worship, or the energy you kind of feel. Like, you know, they talked about protests and Pentecost, like the, those moments of, of high energy, high spirit, um, to where it physically doesn't make sense, but spiritually, there are things going on in the atmosphere and in people, um, or even people who have came and said, we need to shift this way, or we need to move this way, you know, and so being discerning of that out there. And I think that's an important part of protest. You need prophetic voices at these movements. Uh, you need prophetic people uh, on the streets working who have always been there, so. And when we see clergy people, um, show up to these protests with a collar on, with a stole on, a robe, whatever they use to signal that, that gives voice to their prophetic witness. It also serves as um, we've seen in Ferguson and many other places where when clergy would um, step in in between police and other protesters with the hope that, you know, you're kind of using their bodies as that shield, um, that you were just talking about, Darren, because, you know, we know that um, it's, we've seen, although not all the time, um, police might be, might be a little less likely to, to um, start firing rubber bullets with a person in full clergy guard, although that has still happened. But anyway, um, yeah, but it's, it's, it is, it's all of that um, that's needed and then some. Thanks for listening to this episode of Candler and Conversation. Be sure to like and subscribe to be updated when we release new episodes. You can also visit candlerfoundry.emory.edu to learn more about our courses, speaker series, resources, and other offerings developed with you and your community in mind.